0: All right, well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 19, and we are going to be finishing off this chapter today. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 41. So Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, says this. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess." If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thus ends our reading of God's idol-crushing word. May all who hear it trust in the one true God, the creator of all that there is. Back when I was a student at the University of Michigan and attending New Life Church, I spent most of my summers down in Myrtle Beach as New Life had their leadership training program down there. And in those days, I, I got to share the gospel with a lot of folks. This one time, my friend Carl and I met this middle-aged man who you could tell had had a hard life. He, he reeked of alcohol and, and seemed to be in a, a depression. And yet we got to share the gospel with this man in the hopes that, that Jesus would come into his life and, and bring him the joy that comes with salvation. And for the most part, he he seemed to be receptive to the message, but we couldn't quite tell because we weren't quite sure how sober this man truly was. Well, later that day, Carl and I had the opportunity to share the gospel once again, this time with some local teenagers who were hanging out near the pier. Uh, Basically, they were hanging out underneath the pier. Um, Now, I had met these kids before, so I already knew that These were troubled youths, kids who were getting into all sorts of mischief. Most of them were into drinking and and smoking, and a few of them were, I I know, were doing drugs. And and it seemed like uh, they they had great potty mouths as well. It seemed like every other word they spoke was an F-bomb. And yet Carl and I, we were trying to reach them with the gospel, with the message of of Jesus Christ and how he can save them from all these things. But unfortunately, most of these kids did not want to hear what we had to say. As soon as I started to talk to one about Christ, it seemed like he would just slip away and then I'd have to start a conversation with someone else. And yet after a while, something strange happened. That that man that Carl and I had talked to earlier found us. He, he walked up to our group, and he began to speak. And he told these teenagers that they had better listen to me and Carl, for he had once been in their shoes, and he knew the path that they were treading. He said that if they didn't slow down, if they didn't turn from their ways, well, then, well then they would find themselves exactly where he was, depressed and alone, with nothing but his addictions to get him through the day. Now when these teens heard what this man had to say, it was like a match was struck and it set them on fire. They didn't want to hear a word from this man's mouth. And in fact, the, the, the largest one, the strongest one in the group finally had enough and, and he stood up, shoved this man to the ground. He then proceeded to jump on top and jump on top of him and began punching him in the face over and over again. Now, this all happened so fast, I wasn't sure how I should react. Finally, I, I entered into the fray. I pulled this kid off of the man so that the, the guy could get away. One of the other kids who was a bit more friendly towards us told told me and Carl that we should prob- probably leave. And So that's exactly what we did before more violence ensued. Now, now for the longest time, I could never figure out what caused such a strong, strong reaction. But after long reflection over the years, I, I believe that what this, this man said to these teenagers, it, it exposed them. That the things that they were living for were leading them to a terrible, terrible end. And I mean, this man was pretty much a walking testimony to their future selves if they did not change. And yet, rather than listening to the truth, they resorted to throwing punches. And unfortunately, this is often the reaction of the world when the truth comes bearing down upon them, is it not? And this is what we see in our passage for today. Now, now as we have been going through the book of Acts, we we have seen the Apostle Paul go from town to town, from city to city, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ wherever he went. And in the majority of these towns, Paul experienced trouble. Trouble because of the message he preached. He had been run out of towns. He had been chased by angry mobs. And one time he was even stoned and left for dead. And yet if you recall, Paul was able to spend over two years in Ephesus, this huge city without any major disruptions. The Holy Spirit was moving powerfully throughout that city and really throughout the whole region of Asia Minor. Jesus was using signs and wonders that spoke to the superstitious beliefs of the Ephesian Ephesian people. Remember the 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 aprons and the handkerchiefs that had touched Paul's skin. God was able to use those things to bring healing to those who were ill and to cast out demons. And this was all meant to point the people to Paul's message, to his teaching of Jesus Christ, to the one whom Paul was proclaiming. And then to further the point that Jesus... This one whom Paul was teaching as king of kings and lord of lords and the only way of salvation. We then saw the beating of the sons of Skeva, right? Those Jewish exorcists who, who tried to invoke both the names of Jesus and Paul for their own selfish purposes. And remember what the demon did? He said, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? He did not know these sons of Sceva. And so he gave them a thrashing that they would never forget. And in shame, they they fled from his house, bruised and naked. And when news spread about all that had happened, what what happened after that? It led to revival, right? There, There were many more turning to Christ, and a great repentance came about within the church. Those who still had, had ties to the occult and who, who, were, who were worshiping pagan deities still. They, they brought out all their, their magic scrolls, right? And they burned them in a big fire. And so we, we see that God was moving so mightily throughout the city of Ephesus and that his kingdom was expanding as the gospel was being proclaimed. And this leads us to today, Right? Where we see the aftermath of this of this gospel outpouring and the movement of the Holy Spirit. You see, not everyone within Ephesus was happy about the growth of God's kingdom. And that's because as as God's kingdom grows, well, the kingdoms of these false gods, and particularly in Ephesus of the false goddess Artemis, well, that began to shrink. And that's, that's really the main takeaway of our passage for today, that, that when the gospel is proclaimed, it has an effect upon all of society. And in particular, it, is, it brings a disruption to the worship of these man-made gods. Let's, let's consider how this plays out. Look, look at our passage again. Look at Acts chapter 19, verses 21 and 22. Here we see the, the, the setup of our story today. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And so here we see after two plus years in Ephesus, Paul was now led by the Holy Spirit to to go forward, to move on you know just as i had just explained paul had seen the mighty hand of god move throughout the province of asia as the fear of the lord came upon many and and people were renouncing their evil practices and their ties to the to the occult they were now dedicated themselves fully to jesus christ and as a result the church was being built up right it was getting strong and so much of paul's work had been accomplished, and now God would have his apostle move on to another city. And so what was Paul's plan? Well, to go back to the churches that he had planted in the past, both in Macedonia and Achaia, to cities like Philippi and Thessalonica, to cities like Athens and Corinth. Paul probably desired to to, to visit them, to strengthen, to encourage those churches so that they might press on in their witness of Jesus. And yet before he would go, what did Paul do? He, he sent his helpers ahead of him, Timothy and Erastus, two of his most trusted companions, in order that they might prepare these churches for his arrival. But this meant that Paul had a little time left to, to stay in Ephesus in order that he might prepare the church that is there. For his departing. Leadership would have to step up as Paul would move on. But little did Paul know that his re- remaining few days would be his most intense. Look at verses 23 through 27. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, in order for us to understand all that is going on here, we must first understand something about Artemis' worship. I don't know if you remember from a couple weeks ago, I I mentioned about how Artemis was the goddess of the moon and the goddess of the hunt, and how she had dominated the minds of the people within Ephesus. In fact, the the temple to Artemis was so large that it was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And In fact, if we could... Put up that slide. There's a, a, a rendering of what it supposedly looked like. And so you can see that Artemis was a big deal. Now, every man in the city of Ephesus, they, they, they worshipped this goddess. And, and in May, they would hold this annual festival to her. And so people from all around the province would come into this city in order to worship. And while they were there, what they would do is they would would purchase these little miniature statues, these idols depicting Artemis, and they would parade them down the street as they made their, their way to the temple. And as the festival would end, and as many of them would go back home, they would also purchase these these miniature silver shrines that were basically uh, many replicas of that great temple. People would then set them in their houses or in their places of business, believing that these shrines would bring them a connection to the goddess herself. Now, this may seem silly to us, but around much of the world, we, we see similar practices even today. In fact, I got to witness it firsthand when I lived in Thailand. And one of the things you can't help but notice when you when you visit Thailand is how the, the landscape is is littered with what are known as spirit houses. Again, let's put up this picture. There's a spirit house right there. That's what they typically look like. They're these small shrines. They're about the size of a of a large mailbox. And people set them up pretty much everywhere. They're in people's homes. They're in people's businesses. They're in front of schools and hospitals. They're attached to sacred trees and in front of rivers and lakes. And and what these houses are supposed to do are are to provide dwelling for the the myriad of spirits that, that the Thai people worship. It could be a house for a dead ancestor or or simply the spirit of a river or the spirit of some sacred tree. And there are thousands upon thousands of these false gods that the Thai people pay homage to each and every day. And yet in Ephesus, the shrines that were sold were primarily dedicated to this goddess named Artemis. And that's where Demetrius and these other craftsmen come into play. You see, Demetrius was a silversmith by trade. He was one who specialized in in making these silver shrines. And yet as of late, he was not selling as many as he used to. People began believing in this Jesus. And as a result, they were renouncing their ties to all other gods. Now, now, Now think about this. Ephesus was a city of more than 250,000 people. And yet because the gospel was being proclaimed, because people were turning away from their worship of Artemis, these businesses were taking a hit. This means that, that the church in Ephesus wasn't just some small group of people that were meeting in a house somewhere. No, no. The church was massive. For to have an impact upon the the religious businesses of Artemis, well, then there would have had to have been thousands upon thousands of new believers. And they would have been meeting in multiple groups all throughout the city. That was the kind of impact that the gospel was having. And so when this man, Demetrius, called together the Craftsman Guild, he had a legitimate complaint. Their profits had taken a big hit. And so that's what this man appealed to at first, right? He appealed to to, to their wealth. Perhaps it wasn't Artemis so much that was their first love, after all. Perhaps their love of money was just as great. And yet in his complaint, who who did this man blame for all their troubles? The Apostle Paul. Demetrius accused him of persuading and turning away a great many people. In other words, because of Paul's preaching from the hall of Tyrannus, people not only from Ephesus, but from all of Asia Minor were leaving their worship of Artemis and were beginning to worship Jesus Christ alone. And what did Demetrius say was Paul's message? That gods made with hands are not gods. That gods made with hands are not gods. You see this? This man, he he this man's claim was that Paul was preaching something that was damaging To their pocketbooks. For that was their occupation, right? They were in the business of making gods with their hands. And take a moment to think about Paul's words, that gods made with hands are not gods. I mean, to us who have grown up in the West, it seems pretty obvious, right? Of course, things made with hands aren't gods. And yet the only reason we really think this way is because we have been ingrained with a Judeo-Christian worldview since we were young, right? I think my illustration of what takes place in Thailand today demonstrates how much the world still believes that gods can be be crafted out of wood and stone. And yet even though we believe here in America that we have progressed, right, progressed beyond such nonsense, Might I suggest that in many, many ways, we still have gods that we have crafted with our hands. And they pervade our society even as we speak. For instance, how many people are there today who have elevated our our government to a godlike status? I mean, their whole world revolves around politics. And they believe that if the right people get elected, if the right laws get passed, then then their lives and the lives of everyone else will be so much better. And so they, they want more government control because they believe that that is the only way to improve. Let me tell you, Caesar worship still exists today. But even though that is the case, I believe the number one God in America today is the worship of the self. We believe that we are these autonomous beings that don't have to answer to anyone, anyone but ourselves. And in our pursuit of becoming these self-determined people, we, we have decided that there, there can be no authority above us. And unfortunately, we are now teaching our youth at a very young age that the worship of the self should not only be tolerated but it should be deemed as good, it should be celebrated. This is why sin has become so acceptable in our society. Because if if, if a person is worshiping themselves, well then where does their ultimate sense of morality come from? It comes from themselves, right? And so Whatever is their flavor of sin, well, that's acceptable. And so we see things such as premarital sex no longer being frowned upon. People who identify as gay or, or trans are now classified as their own people group rather than what they truly are, which, is, which are sinners. And the way things are trending, pretty soon the polygamists and the, and the pedophiles will be next on that LGBTQ train. And while you may cringe at this and say, well, that could never happen in America. Let me tell you, it almost certainly will happen. <clears throat> For when the God that we worship is the self well, then there is no evil that we can conceive that we will not try to to flip on its head and deem as good. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's a reason God gave us these words. Because he knows how how wicked our hearts truly are. And yet when the gospel is proclaimed, when the the kingship of Jesus is declared, well, those who who worship these man-made gods, they will inevitably lash out. And that is because when Jesus is proclaimed, Then their gods are exposed for what they truly are. Cheap imitations. Those teenagers whom Carl and I were witnessing to down in Myrtle Beach, they had their gods exposed when that man showed up and confronted them. These kids were living for their their own pleasures, for their, their own immediate gratifications. And things like alcohol and drugs had become their gods. And and these gods were leading them down a path of destruction. And this older man was living proof of that. But that's what Jesus does. He he shines his his brilliant light upon our man-made deities, and he exposes them for the frauds that they are. You see, in, in the light of Jesus, our, our our man-centered government is exposed as weak and frail, not being able to save anything or anyone. And in the light of Jesus, the God of the self, it, it crumbles to pieces as Jesus reveals to us that, that all we have deemed to be good and to be good and pure is really full of darkness. That we are not our own authority and that we will all one day have to bend the knee and confess him as Lord. Listen, Jesus will not share his throne with another. And this is why when the gospel is proclaimed, the world becomes angry. For the one true God is not made by hands. He is not something that we can concoct or create. He is not a thing that we can control. Rather, he is the one who has created us. He is the potter and we are the clay. And he is the king of this world, holding all authority in his hands. But the world doesn't want to hear this. For the good news of Jesus Christ is a direct attack upon their gods. And unless they repent, unless they turn to him, they will fight to their last breath to keep their gods alive. And this is why Demetrius was so mad. Because he knew that as the gospel continued to spread throughout Asia Minor, that it would create great damage to the worship of his God, to the worship of Artemis. And the damage would would not just be in Ephesus, but it would spread throughout the whole wide world. If the Apostle Paul kept this up, well, then there would be no one to worship Artemis any longer. And the great temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it would be regarded as nothing. It would simply collect dust until it rotted away. Now now think about this. If Artemis was truly a goddess, shouldn't she be able to defend herself? If she was truly the goddess of the hunt, well then shouldn't she be able to hold her own against one man? Against Paul? I mean, why does Demetrius even need to make such a stink? The, the fact that Demetrius even needed to call this meeting exposed the truth of Paul's words that gods made with hands are not gods. Artemis can't even save herself. And yet, the words of Demetrius rang true to these craftsmen. These men were riled up and ready to take action. Look at, look at our next two verses. Look at verses 28 and 29. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And so these men, they began shouting at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Kind of reminds me of some football games I've been to. With the loud crowds chanting for their teams. And that's what this chant was for, right? To, to get the people's attention and to cause a stir. For as this, as this ruckus spread, it was, it was no longer just these artisans who, who were doing the screaming, was it? But now the whole city was in Chaos. In fact, they were on the verge of a riot, and and things were starting to get dangerous. And in this confusion, these craftsmen, they they dragged both Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, into the city's massive theater. Now, this theater was an open-air forum that could hold up to 24,000 people. Pull up the picture. You can see it right there, how massive it truly was. And this place, it was not just used as a theater, but, but also for other things such as music, as well as any large public meetings that the city deemed to be necessary. And so on this day, my guess is that, that this theater was filled to capacity. And this spelled danger for the church. And these men had already grabbed hold of two of Paul's companions, and I'm sure they were looking for Paul himself. In fact, they were probably using these two men to flush Paul out. What would they do if they got their mitts upon this instigator? Upon this one who claimed that gods made with hands are not gods. Let's read further to see what happened next. Look at verses 30 and 31. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. As you can see, this plan to to flush Paul out would have worked if Paul had his own way. For he wanted to go down there. Paul was not afraid to die for his Lord, particularly if it would mean the rescue of his companions. And yet in the wisdom of the, these other disciples, uh, Paul stayed. You see, these other men knew that the only reason Gaius and Aristarchus were on that stage was because these craftsmen wanted Paul. And Luke even tells us that Paul received warning from the Asiarchs. These were men who were part of the government leadership of Ephesus. These men also counseled Paul not to go to that theater. They understood that his life in particular was in grave danger. And yet, as Paul stayed put, the confusion persisted. Look at at verses 32 through 34. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they had even come together Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! I'm sure many of you who drive know what gawker traffic is, right? It's where you have an accident on the side of the road, and everyone driving on the highway slows down just to get a peek, just to fulfill their curiosity. Well, this mob also had Gawker traffic. Many of the people who were there initially had no clue what was taking place or why they even showed up. They simply heard the chanting and and needed to have their curiosities fed. And so this theater filled up quickly as the confusion persisted. And it was at this point that this man named Alexander was was pushed forward, right? Most likely he was one of the leaders within the Jewish community of Ephesus. And the reason he would have come forward was to to defend that Jewish community. He he wanted to separate themselves from Paul, who was also a Jew, right? Right? He wanted to make sure that everyone knew that that his Jews, that his group, didn't have any association with this apostle. And yet, Alexander's attempt to speak out was short lived, right? In fact, it caused things to escalate. For once the crowd saw that that he was a Jew, it just riled them up even more. They weren't going to listen to anyone who was not a worshiper. Of Artemis and this led to two straight hours of this continuous chanting great is Artemis of the Ephesians now this kind of chanting is what you typically find at a political demonstration right I mean think about all the protests that we have seen throughout the years in front of the supreme court how the people who are there are continuously shouting some catchy slogan over and over and over again. And their mindset is that if you repeat something enough times, well, then it must be true. These people in Ephesus, they saw the threat that the gospel had created to their goddess Artemis. And so they shouted at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this persisted for two straight hours. I mean, this is the type of passion that these people had for their false deity. And yet, no matter how hard you shout, and no matter how long you shout it for, it doesn't make it true. God will ultimately have the final say. Let's continue on. Look at, look at verses 35 through 40. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really... For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Now this town clerk had some wisdom, did he not? Who who was this man? Well, he would have been the local chief executive officer of that, that city. He was the one who acted as a mediator between the local government of Ephesus and Rome with Caesar. And so when he stepped onto that stage, he held a commanding enough presence to finally silence the crowd. And that's because everybody knew that he represented Rome. And what was the city clerk trying to do? He, he was trying to regain order within his city, right? He wanted to make sure that no violence would break out. But in order to do so, he, he would need to find a, find a way to somehow appease the crowd. And so what did he say? Well, for one, he, he acknowledged what this mob was shouting, right? That Artemis was great. That the city of Ephesus was the center of her worship. But more than that, he then argued for the legitimacy of Artemis' worship. He spoke about a sacred stone falling from the sky. This was a, a local legend saying that they had saying that the statue that was in that temple of Artemis had actually come down from the heavens. <clears throat> and perhaps it was carved out of some meteorite that had fallen long ago. We don't know. Whatever the case, uh, the legend proved to be a, a solid enough argument for these Ephesians. Ephesians. For if it was true, then then Paul's claim that God's made with hands are not God's, well, it holds no weight. For if the legend was true, well, then this Artemis statue was not made by human hands, but by Artemis herself. Basically, what this city clerk was saying was this, stop worrying about Paul's words, for you have this great statue that you can worship. but not only did this man defend the worship of Artemis but then he also established a defense for the Christians who had been taken captive he said that neither Gaius nor Aristarchus had committed any crime they had not blasphemed the name of Artemis nor had they spoken against her they had not robbed her temple they had not desecrated it therefore if Demetrius and these other artisans if they had any true complaint Well, then, they needed to deal with it officially through the proper channels, through the civil courts and not through mob rule. Bottom line, this man was saying that there was no room for anarchy in Ephesus. And this led to the city clerk's final argument, that they must now stop with their riotous behavior, for it it would not benefit anyone if Rome got involved. In other words, don't do anything rash. Don't do anything stupid that you might regret. For they were close to being charged with rioting. And if that was the case, it would bring the heavy hand of the Romans down upon them. Basically, what this man did was instill fear within the, within the citizens of Ephesus. He, he, he let them know that they were that close to being in serious, serious trouble. For if Rome got involved, it would affect all walks of life. City officials would be removed from office, guilds would be disbanded, and many of their own freedoms would be lost. And the fact that the city clerk mentioned Demetrius by name was an indirect threat towards him. He was implicating him as the cause of this riotous behavior. Meaning that if things continued to escalate, he would be the one to blame, and possibly charged with insurrection. Well, the reasoning and the threats of the city clerk work, and as our last verse bears for us, look look at verse forty-one. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And so, with this dismissal, everybody left the theater. They went to their homes. Both Gaius and Aristarchus were set free and this sudden threat to the church had been quelled. But even though the crowds had been quieted, even though the church made its way through this, you can't help but to see the animosity that the worshipers of Artemis had with those of the way with those who follow Christ. And that's because when the gospel message is preached, it truly is a direct attack upon their gods, upon the gods of this world. You see, Jesus has the power to topple idols as he exposes their true nature, as he shows the world that they are not gods at all, but simply manifestations of a sinful heart. I and mean, think about it. Where is the worship of Artemis today? Where is her great temple that was once seen as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? It is now a pile of rubble, and her worshipers are few and far between. And that's because she has been exposed for the fraud that she is. And yet, the kingdom of God continues to grow. Christ is building a temple for himself that puts all the wonders of this world to shame. Listen to the Apostle Paul's world in, in his letter to the Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. <clears throat> so then, Listen, the the, the one true God is not made by the hands of men. Rather, he is the one who is the builder. And he is building for himself a temple that is far greater and far superior to any temple that man could ever build. For the stones that he uses are his people. And the cornerstone is Christ himself. Artemis has fallen And so too will every other false god in this world. And that's because they cannot withstand the power of Jesus Christ. The power of the true God. The one who truly did come down from heaven as he took upon human flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is victorious and Artemis is just a pile of rubble. And yet the battle still wages against the gospel of Jesus Christ even today. And that's because the world knows that if the gospel wins out, if King Jesus reaches the hearts of the people, then the gods whom they worship will shrivel into nothing. Let us as God's people not shrink back in the face of their protest. Rather, let us continue to declare Jesus as King. That we too may see the gods of this world exposed and the idols toppled to the ground. Let us pray. Father, as we hear these words of yours, we can't help but to think of all the people in this world who are trapped trapped in the worship of their false gods. Father, there are so many people today who are relying upon anything and everything except for you. So we pray for them. We pray for you to expose their false gods for the frauds that they are. And we pray for the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be proclaimed loudly so that all the world might see the truth and bend the knee to their one true king. Lord, may the idol worshipers repent and may they draw near to, the, to your son. We need your Holy Spirit to move even today, even as he did in Ephesus. May we see thousands upon thousands profess Jesus as our Lord. Do this, we pray in Christ's name, amen.